0: please email us at info at capitalcommunitychurch.com. We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 10. We are beginning a series within a series. Now, we've been in the Gospel of John. That's the big series but we are now beginning a series on the Good Shepherd of John chapter 10, just an absolutely remarkable section of Scripture that teaches us so much about our relationship with our Lord, about the nature of the Christian faith. It really is one of those remarkable chapters that, that is located in the Gospel of John that is just so packed with truth. That we really need to take time to understand it and to walk through it. Now, I was very ambitious, and I thought that I was going to go through the first ten verses with y'all. And so, when I submitted the sermon title, I think on Wednesday, uh, I, I gave a title called "Thieves, Sheep, and Shep and the Shepherd." And listen. Uh, we're not, I I realized by Thursday, Friday, I wasn't going to get to about half of what I had originally thought I was going to cover. So today's message is called A Biblical Theology of Shepherding, because I really want to set this up for you so you can understand what is taking place here in John chapter 10, because unless I give you the full biblical context, you won't understand the the complexity and the profundity of Of the truth that Jesus is teaching. Now let me read. I'm just going to read this morning the first six verses. So if you would take out your Bibles and let's look at the first six verses of John chapter 10. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. what he was saying to them i believe that god designed the relationship of the sheep to its shepherd to help us understand the relationship that god's sheep have with our lord yahweh himself that god created this picture to help us understand the very heart of the christian life in our relationship to God. I was once told this, that sheep are the only animals in the world that require for them to survive that they be domesticated. In other words, the sheep is the only animal that cannot survive without man. And I was thinking about this. You kind of think back to the, the fall and when Adam and Eve left the garden, and how Adam and Eve would have discovered this truth. And, you know, you think about the animals that they would have considered and looked at. And they, you know, obviously the dinosaurs, you know, look at the brontosaurus. They're going to survive just fine. Look at the rabbits. You know, they run away. They're eating the grass. They're going to survive just fine. You look at the eagles and their perch and and, and them eating eating fish from the, the creeks. They're going to survive just fine. But at some point, very quickly, somebody looked at the sheep and they said, You know, I don't think those animals have a chance <laughs> if we don't do something and intervene. I saw this picture. Maybe y'all saw this on, on social, but I saw this picture of a sheep that a sheep that wandered off into the woods somewhere. And it had been lost for for like a year or two years. And then when they finally found this sheep, it looked like a walking cloud. The wool had completely grown over its eyes and basically over its head to the point where it could hardly even see anymore. Point being, sheep cannot survive long-term without people. A sheep needs a shepherd if for no other reason than to shear its wool they need a shepherd to guide them to pasture to water to protect them from the wolves to protect them from predators and that right there at its heart is the relationship with the believer to god we need a shepherd god designed us not as these independent creatures that can live a life apart from God. That's what our culture's saying. Our culture's saying that you can be your own sheep, that you can just go your own way, that you don't need God, that you can be your own God. And how's that working for people? No, no, no. God made us for himself. The scriptures reveal, and we're going to look at this in a second, but that God is the shepherd of our souls. So Christianity is the realization that we need God, that man cannot exist apart from God, that God is the one who ultimately shepherds us if we are willing to submit to him. When we lived in Dallas, Grace Ann and I once took the kids to the Dallas Museum of Biblical Art, the Dallas Museum of Biblical Art, and there was some good stuff in there. There was some not so good stuff in there. But we went to this museum, and there was one particular painting. I took a picture of it. I, I was fascinated by it. I looked at it for a long time, especially as somebody that is in pastoral ministry as a shepherd. But in this picture, there looked like to be a, uh, a Scottish Highland shepherd. And he's shepherding his sheep, and you know, he's, he's got a, a full-brimmed hat and he looks like he's wearing uh, dark wool garments and he's up in the the highlands somewhere and there's a storm coming in and you can tell that a storm is coming in because the sky on on the far left corner is, is black, it's dark and the trees are bending this way and the shepherd is bending over the sheep. He's bending over the sheep and his, his hands look like he's guiding them. And where he's guiding them is there's a stone cross in the picture. And around the stone cross is light. And the shepherd is guiding them to safe haven, which is obviously pictured and symbolized by the cross of our Lord. And that's essentially what God desires to do for his sheep, is to guide his sheep to safe haven to the very truth of the gospel, the very truth of the gospel. So what Jesus reveals here in John chapter 10, this remarkable truth that he's the good shepherd, that he is the the shepherd of the sheep, uh, this, what he's saying, doesn't exist in a vacuum. This is a great theme of scripture so what I want to do is I want to show you this theme because Jesus is picking up on it. He's articulating it. And I, and I want to show you from a 30,000-foot perspective what he's talking about. So I want to give you this morning a biblical theology of shepherding. A biblical theology of shepherding. I want to begin by noticing the fact that some of God's choicest servants throughout Scripture have been shepherds. Remember we said at the very beginning, Adam and Eve realized that the sheep needed to be shepherded. In fact, one of their sons, Abel, was a shepherd. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all shepherds. They lived nomadic lives in tents with their flocks and herds, moving from place to find good pasture. Do you remember in Genesis 30, Jacob was at his father-in-law Laban's house, and he really wanted to get out of there, so he made a deal with Laban. He said, if you give me all the, the spotted goats and all the black sheep, that will be my, my wages. And Laban said, fine, that sounds like a good idea. And then Laban sent his guys out to remove the black sheep and the spotted goats. And so then Jacob and in really in a remarkable way, bred the the sheep and the goats so the qualities of the black wool and the spottedness would appear. And then eventually Jacob took uh, his wages and left. Moses, perhaps the greatest man of God in the entire Old Testament, was a shepherd. Remember, he fled Egypt. He was in the wilderness of Midian working for his father-in-law Jethro. This is Exodus 3.1. It says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And then from there, God commanded Moses to stop shepherding sheep and to shepherd his people Israel out of Egypt. And that's what he did for the next 40 years of his life is he shepherded people. He probably found that task was a little bit harder than shepherding the sheep. Then you have Joshua. Listen to how Moses describes his successor Joshua. This is Numbers twenty-seven seventeen. Moses says, Who shall go out before them and come in before them? Who shall lead them out and bring them in? That the congregation of the Lord may not be a sheep, that have no shepherd, it will be Joshua. Then David, the Lord's anointed king, was himself a shepherd of his father Jesse's flock in Bethlehem. This is what David told Saul. You remember David volunteered to fight Goliath, and he appears in Saul's tent. Saul is inquisitive. What makes you qualified to go fight this giant? David says this, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. So there very clearly you see that the role of the shepherd is to protect the sheep, to protect the sheep from wolves, from predators. Sheep need a deliverer. They need a protector. They need a provider. Now, do you think that it's just happenstance that all these great men of God in Israel's history in the Old Testament were all shepherds? No, it is not. No, it is not. The truth is that God is the shepherd of his people. God, Yahweh, is the shepherd of his people. It was David who penned Psalm 23. You remember what David says. He says, For the Lord, Yahweh, is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod is in your staff, they comfort me. David realized that God's relationship to his people is that of a shepherd. And David, even though he was a brilliant man, even though he was a warrior, even though he was um, very capable, understood that he was but a sheep, and God was his shepherd. And that apart from God, this is so important to understand, that he would never find the satisfaction that his soul longed for. David said, you restore my soul. You restore my soul. You ever find yourself where you're just down? Life has, circumstances have, have happened to you that were unexpected, and you're just facing what seems like a constant uphill battle. You're facing financial difficulties, family difficulties, whatever it is, and you're just asking the question, God, I just feel dry. I feel, I feel parched. How do I get out of this? Well, David says the shepherd is the one who restores your very soul. God restores the soul. David says God is the one who leads you into the green pastures. We think that we can wind up in the green pastures by our own wisdom and thinking? Have we forgotten the providence of God? That the shepherd controls the events of your life? That the shepherd is working even the bad things for your good to lead you to where you need to be? And that he puts you, he says, in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Those paths are like wagon tracks in the ground. That's literally what he's describing about. When you get a wagon in the ruts of well-worn tracks, what do those wheels do? They stay in the track. They, st- they stay in the tread. They don't, the wheels don't easily get out. And what God does with the Christian is he forms you by the word of God and the people of God so that you develop habits of righteousness in godliness, all for his namesake, which means it's for his glory and his honor. Remember Billy Graham? Billy Graham had a rule called the Billy Graham Rule. I know people talk about it with Mike Pence and everything else, but it was really wise. It was really wise. He said, I won't be in a room alone with a woman who's not my wife. I'm not going to handle the money for the BGEA. If if there's a financial... uh, Impropriety. It's not going to be because it was me because I don't handle a dime. Uh, he said we will not talk negatively about other evangelists. So they made these rules for themselves and they held themselves to that standard. And now, after the fact, is anybody around saying, "Oh, I really have some doubts about the integrity of Billy Graham"? No, no. There's, there's no question. Now, where did he get that idea? How did they wind up in those paths of righteousness? He and Cliff Barrows and Beverly Shea, all those guys. How did they end up in that path? Because the shepherd put them there. It's the work of God in their life. Every act of sanctification you make, that every gain that you make is a result of the good shepherd guiding you and leading you. We were created for his workmanship that he ordained that you would walk in the good works. So, God Himself is David teaches us our shepherd, and here's here's the reality of that. If you understand that God is your shepherd all the time, and, you, and He's with you when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, well, He's always guiding you, He's always leading you, then you can say this with David, Psalm sixteen eight, I have set the Lord always before me, and because He is at my right hand, I will not be shaken because you're never alone. If you're, if you are really one of God's sheep, you're never alone. Every situation that you're in, you know that your shepherd guided you there, and he's with you, and his rod and his staff will comfort you. And so, when you're in the dark place, when you're in the valley of the shadow of death, uh, you do not need to be afraid. I know it's disconcerting, and I know you just want God to lift the cloud But you need to remember that your good shepherd there is with you. And if you are one of his sheep, he will never abandon your soul. He comes to you, and he will guide you, and he will feed you, and he will protect you. Listen, I just want to give you a few verses. Genesis 49, 24. Moses says, God is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Psalm 77, 20. You, Yahweh, led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Psalm 80, verse 1. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. Isaiah says in Isaiah 40, verse 11, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms, he will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. God is the ultimate shepherd of his people. Praise be to God. And underneath God's direction, God appoints what you might call under shepherds. In the New Testament, they would be the elders of the flock. In the Old Testament, they were the priests, they were the kings, Uh, they were the prophets like Moses. And sometimes there's an issue with under-shepherds. Sometimes you have what you call false shepherds, false teachers. And this is part of the background of John chapter 10. I want to show you this. I would like you to turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 34. You really can't understand John chapter 10 without first understanding Ezekiel chapter 34. Now, Ezekiel, it, it's... it's um, It's in the Old Testament. Turn back to your left. It's right before Daniel, right after Lamentations. And we are looking at the 34th chapter. Looking at the 34th chapter. And I really want you to turn there and see this, because this is really important for understanding the background of John 10. Here's what Ezekiel says. He says, the word of the Lord came to me. He says, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds. Thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? What is the primary responsibility of God's under shepherds? both Old Testament and New Testament, to feed the sheep this, the Word of God. That's the primary responsibility. And he says, there's a problem. You've been feeding yourself. You've been looking out for your own well-being without feeding the sheep. Verse 3, he says, you eat the fat You clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. In other words, you're willing to sacrifice the sheep for yourself, but you don't feed them, you don't give them any of the truth of the Word of God. He says, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. In other words, they haven't been sensitive to God's people. They haven't looked out after the brokenhearted. They haven't looked after those who are strained. They have essentially used the sheep for their own personal gain. And when the sheep come to them, if you look at the end of verse four, look how they deal with them. They deal with them with force and harshness and they domineer over them. They rule them. So God says they were scattered. The sheep were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. I talk to a lot of people and a lot of people when I'm traveling or, or just even meeting somebody in town, one of the things that I hear over and over and over again is this. I just want a shepherd to give me the word of God. I just want a shepherd to give me the word of God. There is a famine in this land. There is a famine in the land. And so often, houses of worship are doing everything but giving people the Bible. It's Silly stories. It's man's ideas of emancipation and industry. It's psychological trends. It's everything but giving people the unadulterated Word of God. Not just telling people what you think the Bible says, but actually reading the Bible. In showing people what the Bible means. That's why we make great pains to every time we gather to read the Word of God. Devote yourself, Paul says to Timothy, to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to truth, to doctrine. We have to sit underneath the Word of God, explain the Word of God, so God's sheep actually knows what it says and the ultimate meaning of the word of god is this is that jesus christ is the good shepherd of your soul the the whole point of the bible is christ and him crucified it all points to him it all points to him and what so many guys are doing listen especially it's because it started in the prosperity with the prosperity gospel in the prosperity churches but so many people are tickling people's ears by saying that the sheep are the heroes of every story. That's the prosperity gospel. It's not just if you give a little money that you're going to be blessed. Of course, that's the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is also this, that you can be your own hero. That if you just apply these principles, that, you're, that you are going to be be a, a spiritual uh, Moses or whatever, that you are the champion of every story. How often do you hear that? That's a little bit more subtle, isn't it? But here's the thing. We like to hear that we are the, the meaning of the story. That's, that's something people like to hear, but it's not true. The whole point of the Bible is that we are in need of mercy and grace And that Christ is the champion of the story. And that we come to Christ in the gospel and he is the deliverer of our souls. We are not the deliverer of our souls. So that's how the message is subtly twisted to where people become the heroes of their own stories and scriptures. Does that make sense? You know what I'm talking about? Okay. Um, Look at verse 7. God says, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the Word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand, and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. Enter John chapter 10. This is what Jesus came to do. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious elite of the at the time they are the false shepherds they are the robbers and the thieves they are the ones who just say you can keep the law and be the hero of your own story they were not feeding the sheep so this is what God says verse 11 for thus says the Lord God behold I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out what does Jesus do with the man born blind He seeks him out. He goes after him. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. And I will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines. And in all the habited places of the country, I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel, they sh- there shall be grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land. And on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself, listen, will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. God is the shepherd of the sheep. And who is Christ? Second person of the Trinity. He is the very Son of God. Several other things that you need to see. Turn over to the right to one of the last books of the Old Testament Zechariah Zechariah 13 look at this prophecy Zechariah 13 verse 7 this is what God says he says awake O sword against my shepherd oh my against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. What's that about? That's a prophecy about the crucifixion of our Lord. God says, I will send my shepherd. He will be my shepherd. He will shepherd my people. But God says, I will strike the shepherd. Who are the little ones that are going to be scattered? Those are the apostles, right? Between the crucifixion and the resurrection, the uh, the apostles are scattered. So this is in the divine plan of God that the shepherd would be struck. This is all being worked out. This is God's foreordained plan that the shepherd would lay down his life for the sheep. Now I'm going to turn here. Uh, I'm going to read you a couple verses. Uh, You don't necessarily need to turn here. I know I'm sending you uh, hither and thro throughout all of the Bible. But in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, says this, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, Look at this, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant equip you with everything good that you may do his will. So the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is this great shepherd of the sheep and he has this right to be called that because he poured out his blood, the blood of the eternal covenant. That word great, that prefix great is the Greek word mega, it means it means the great shepherd, uh, the the highest shepherd. Uh, Jesus is the ultimate shepherd. Peter says the same thing in First Peter chapter five. 1 Peter chapter five, verse one. Peter says this: "So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ." as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, this is, this is what Peter says to the elders. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge. You hear that, uh, that Ezekiel reference there, but being examples to the flock. And listen, and when the chief shepherd the the greek word is one greek word the arche poimen the arch shepherd the chief shepherd when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the unfading crown of glory and he says likewise you who are young be subject unto the elders clothe, clothe yourselves all of you with humility toward one another for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So, so Peter says that elders have a responsibility to shepherd the flock of God in their charge, not as, as ultimate authority, but under the authority of the chief shepherd. That's the role of a pastor, is to shepherd the flock, but given knowing that Christ is the arche poiemen. He is your chief shepherd of your soul and how does Christ as the chief shepherd of your soul shepherd you through the word of God wherever you go in this life wherever you go in this world however long you live wherever the lord takes you the lord shepherds you through his word and that's why the pastor this is why so this is my job my job isn't just to come up here and stand you and tell you what grant castleberry thinks about anything none of that matters what matters is that you hear from the chief shepherd of your soul, from the RK employment. He is, Jesus says, the chief shepherd. Now, one last verse I want to show you. This is in Revelation chapter 7. Verse 17. John's describing heaven itself. The vision of heaven, he's describing the saints that have gone to be with the Lord, that are with the Lord in glory. And um, he says in verse 16, he says, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. And then look at this. He says, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Christ, the Lamb of God, is the eternal shepherd of your souls. Forever and ever and ever and ever, when you come into glory, He will shepherd you, and He will lead you to waters, and He will wipe away every tear from your eye. There will be no grief in heaven Christ himself will shepherd us. Praise be to God. So that's a biblical theology of shepherding. That's a 30,000-foot overview. Now, I know that took some time, but I think it sets up everything that Jesus is talking about in John chapter 10. So I want you to turn back now to John chapter 10, and I want to explain to you What is going on here? So now we've seen a 30,000-foot overview. Now I want to come down to 10,000 feet, and I want to give you the basic context of what's happening. So first question I asked when I was looking at John chapter 10 is who is Jesus speaking to? Who is Jesus speaking to? If you you study it carefully, it's very clear that he's speaking to the same Pharisees that he was speaking to at the end of John chapter 9. When the Bible was written, there weren't chapters and verses in the original. Do you know that? These were inserted thousand years later. So there was no break between John 9 and 10 when, when John wrote his gospel. The people that he is speaking to when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, are the same Pharisees that had kicked the blind, the man born blind that Jesus had healed out of Judaism. You remember they had kicked him out of the synagogue. They said, You are done with the with the Old Testament people of God. You are not allowed to worship in synagogue. You are not allowed to worship in temple. Uh, you are not allowed to make sacrifices. You are done. If you look at the verse 41 at the end of John chapter 9. Jesus says, if you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. They would not admit that they were sinners in need of a Savior. They would not admit that they were sheep in need of a shepherd. So, Jesus says, your guilt remains. So, now Jesus communicates to them. He tells them, a story. And that's my second question, is how does Jesus communicate to these Pharisees? And he communicates through a figure of speech that is really, Jesus only uses in the gospel of John, it's only recorded by John, called an allegory, called an allegory. An allegory is a symbolic story. It's slightly different than a parable, which you see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Sometimes those are called the synoptic gospels. A parable is essentially a simile that communicates truth. Jesus would be teaching, and then he would say something like, the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field that a man was walking, and he stumbled, and he found that treasure, and then he goes, and in his joy, he sells everything that he has, and he buys that field so he can possess that treasure. What's Jesus saying? He's communicating one simple truth. He's saying that the kingdom of God is worth everything you have. That's what he's saying. Same with the pearl of great price. Uh, Think about the parable of the lost coin. A woman in Luke 15, she loses a coin. What does she do? She searches her entire house, turns everything over until she finds that coin. And when she finds that coin, there's great rejoicing. Jesus says, So is it in heaven when one sinner comes to repentance? There's great rejoicing in heaven. The story represents one simple spiritual truth that's what a parable is. Now, an allegory is different in that a simile, or sorry, a parable is like a simile in that it comes alongside the truth that Jesus would be teaching, and then Jesus would explain it. Uh, 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 A parabolus, a parable, means to throw alongside. That's what a parable is. An allegory, the story speaks for itself. The truth is conveyed through symbolism in the story, and oftentimes those symbols are given explanation by the speaker of the story. So you think about Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, which is the most famous allegory that's ever been written. You look at, when you read Pilgrim's Progress, you don't have any doubt in your mind about trying to figure out who the good guys are and the bad guys are. The good guys have names like Christian, and hopeful, and faithful, and Prudence, things like that. The bad guys have names like obstinate and worldly wise men, and and uh, Apollyon, and, and things like that. The places have names like Doubting Castle, the Slough of Despond, the Hill Difficulty, the Celestial City. You don't have any problem figuring out what these symbols picture but as the story unfolds, the story speaks for itself, and you're like, oh, so, so, so when Christian goes up the, the, uh, the, the hill, it's like he's trying to climb Mount Sinai. It's like he's trying to earn his salvation by works righteousness. Okay, I get it. I understand that. So, the symbols in an allegory speak for themselves. And so it is in John chapter 10. This is what Jesus is doing. And what I want to do now for you is I want to give you a key for these symbols, okay? I want to give you a key so you can understand the symbols that Jesus is using. And this will be really helpful over the coming weeks, because if you don't understand the symbols, you won't understand the the message that Jesus is giving. Now, this first one I'm going to mention is very important. If you don't understand uh, this first symbol, you, you you won't understand the entire story. The first symbol that we see is in verse 1. It's the sheepfold. You see here, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door. The sheepfold, uh, outside a village that had sheep, you would have a large stone structure and that stone structure would have maybe 10 12 foot high walls and at night the shepherds would take their flock of sheep to the sheepfold and they would deposit them there now the sheepfold would not normally have a roof it would be open air on top and there would be a hired hand a porter or a gate guard that would guard the single door Into the sheepfold. And all the shepherds would take their flock to the sheepfold and deposit them there for the night. And then when they came back in the morning, they would come back to the same sheepfold and then they would call their sheep out. And the sheep would recognize their voice for that specific shepherd. And then they would go out with that shepherd into the pasture. Now, here's the thing there might be multiple flocks in one sheepfold. And that each shepherd would have their own distinct call and their own distinct voice in calling their sheep. Now, here's what's interesting. Here's what's interesting. Here's something I saw this week. The sheepfold represents Israel. The sheepfold represents the nation of Israel. Okay? How do I know that? Verse 16, Jesus says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. In other other words, there are Gentiles and Samaritans that I am going to bring in. But the sheep fold is Israel. What's the context? Remember the context of John 9. What is the context? If you don't understand the context, you'll miss the meaning. The context is the man was kicked out of Israel. He's booted out, and Jesus calls him and brings him out. He's bringing his sheep out of Israel to start a new community called the church. That is the picture of what is taking place. So the sheepfold represents Israel. The sheep, do I need to explain that one? Okay, that one's very obvious. Now, the first door, the first door, uh, it's mentioned in verse 1, Truly and truly I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Uh, It's also mentioned, verse 2, he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. I think uh, the door here is used slightly differently than it's used in verses um, 7 and um, 9. Here, in the first part of, of the uh, allegory, the door represents the prophecies and predictions regarding the Messiah of the Old Testament. What does Jesus do? He enters by the door. In other words, he's born in Bethlehem, fulfilling Micah 5.2. He's raised in Galilee, fulfilling Isaiah Uh, 9-2. He works the sign of the Messiah, Isaiah 35. He does all the specific requirements that are required of the Messiah. He enters by the door. The thief and the robber, those represent the Pharisees and religious leaders who preyed on Israel's children for their own gain without pointing them to the Messiah. They never talk about Messiah. They only talk about Midrash. They only talk about their understanding of the law. And then the gatekeeper, the porter, look at verse 3, to him the gatekeeper opens. The gatekeeper opens to, to Christ. He opens the door to Christ. And then Christ comes through the door, he fulfills the prophecies, and he comes through the door, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. The gatekeeper, the porter, the hired hand here I believe represents the witness of the Holy Spirit who testifies through the scriptures, through the ministry of John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The gatekeeper points to the one who is coming in through the door so that the sheep recognize that this is indeed their shepherd. The second door is very obvious in verses 7 and 9. Jesus says, it is him himself. He says, I am the door. It doesn't become uh, more simplistic and obvious than that. He, here's the connection, though. The first door are regarding the prophecies and predictions, requirements of the Messiah. Jesus fulfills those, therefore he is the door in verses 7 and 9. Jesus is obviously the shepherd in verse 2 and the good shepherd in verse 11. That is so clear, crystal clear, needs no explanation And then look at verse 16, there is a flock, there is a flock. He says, and I have other sheep, that would be the Gentiles, if you're not born a Jew, that's you, that I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. Look at this, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. So what's the flock? It's the entirety of the people of God, both Jew and Gentile, Samaritan, God fearer. Everyone who is a sheep and follows the shepherd's voice is part of the flock. And and Christ builds this flock out of the Jew. He calls them out of Israel. And he says, I have other sheep. That's you and me, probably, that are not of this fold that I must bring in to be part of the flock. So those are the general symbols of the story. Now to see it all fleshed out, you're going to have to come back next week. (laughs) All right? So we've laid the groundwork now. Now you've seen the biblical theology of shepherding. You've seen what the symbols essentially represent. Now you can start to study it for yourself. Put on your thinking caps, and you, put, you can begin to look at this and begin to understand the role of Christ, the good shepherd, in your life as the shepherd of his sheep. Praise be to God. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for these truths that you are the shepherd of the, the flock, the great shepherd who calls his own sheep by name, who called some out of the fold of Israel, that you have other sheep that are not of this fold, that you call us as well. And Lord, we praise you that you are our shepherd, that guides us, that leads us into good pastures, that leads us beside still waters, and that you restore our very souls. Lord, our hope is in you. Our eyes are on you. For your name and your glory. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.